Hello, and welcome to the Poplar PropCast. I am your host, Justin Libernet. This is part two of three. We're setting down the groundwork for HVAC, heating, venting, and air conditioning. We did air conditioning, its history, and kind of current use in the last episode. It's, it's worth going back and taking a listen if you haven't listened to it. Uh, in this one, we're going to be talking about heating. Specifically, we'll be talking about residential heating and how it kind of came to pass and how it influences where people live and what kind of technologies are currently out there. Then once we've set that floor, we'll have a good grasp on AC, we'll have a good grasp on heating, and then we're going to talk next time about all the things that are changing, how this affects building, how this affects residences, how it affects bills, all that kind of stuff. So to start us off, I will point out that... There's a lot going on in the distant past that we're not really going to cover, and that's using fires for heat and covering yourselves in stacks of animals and making tents for the first time because it's colder outside. Like, oh, all these things are there, but we're going to kind of recognize that those are there, and the original sources of heat are obviously shelter and fire. Okay, so shelter and fire changed where and how people could live, and that's a kind of really really ancient past. They're finding stuff now where um, early types of hominids that we didn't think could do fire were doing fire. So there's a there's a recent paper that came out that puts the first fire use of an animal. Well, I, it's past an animal, right? It's, it's this thing called Homo naledi. And it's, they're finding a whole bunch of results that makes it look really certain that they used fire to not only explore caves, and stay warm, but also to cook food. So this might have been the first use beyond warmth, but for visibility and uh, cooking food. So this was 250,000 years ago. We were already past fire for comfort and into fire as tool, right? So that's a big step where you don't just pile it up and go sit around it. You use it for things like looking inside of caves and cooking your snacks. So that's a big pivot. We'll recognize that. Recognize there's a lot to talk about in the spread of people, in um, in moving into the Siberian waste, into crossing the land bridge. Totally got it. But we're going to talk more about formalized human societies kind of putting together plans to heat homes on purpose. And probably the first place we see anything like this is what's called the Hippocost, H-Y-P-O-C-A-U-S-T. So the Hippocost is one of the first coordinated heating ways. It's from Greek hypo meaning under and cost meaning burnt. And they basically had hollow floors under the building and they'd build a fire on the edge of the building and the smoke from the fire and the heat from the fire would move through the bottom of the building and out the other side. So it was a coordinated way to heat underneath the floor. It was subfloor heating and it was happening in the 300 BCs. I mean, that's the earliest one they're pretty sure they found is 350 BC for the Greeks. So the Greeks are doing this. And they continue to do that and improve on it to the point where when the Romans come along, they do it too. And they put them all through Europe. So Italy, England, Spain, France, Switzerland, Germany, even as far as northern Africa, um, the Romans were putting this all over the place. Now, that's the ones we know about in 
purposefully built. But then in the 80s, they found more and they found stuff in Georgia, uh, the, the SSR, like Russia, Georgia. And they found this ancient settlement of Zalisi and they found a castle complex that had a well-preserved hippocaust that was built between 200 and 400 BC. Now it's possible this was shared knowledge. It's possible also that it went from Russia to Greece. It went from Greece to Russia, either one of those possible. But then you get into the kicker, which happens a lot, and that's that around 1000 BC, Korean houses used what are called ondoi. Uh, they provided floor heating in a similar way to the Hippocaust. It drew smoke from a wood fire from cooking that flowed through. So while they were cooking, they were also warming the main room of the house. So you've got these ancient civilizations that are doing subfloor heating, which is really cool because that's a really efficient way to heat these houses. It's a lot better than what we're going to see in the Middle Ages in Europe, where one of the main ways to heat the rooms is to just have a giant fireplace in the room that kind of the open fire heats it, right? So then you're exposing uh, the smoke and the room to the fire. It works really well though, so I'm, I'm not going to knock it. But you do then have these very drafty rooms because the air has to flow through to get up the chimney. So you're radiating heat, you're heating up the room, but you also have these drafts. English castles are famous for their drafts. The other thing the English are doing at this time is hanging tapestries and they hang them a little bit off the wall. So a lot of those tapestries that people are, that are super famous, like the bio tapestry that shows the Battle of Hastings, all these things are there, these tapestries, as insulation because stone is cold. And England especially tends to be pretty cold. So by putting these uh, tapestries and hanging them a little bit off the wall, you have this insulation. So you've got a big fire in there and an insulation hanging off the wall. And you look at that and you go, well, how are you guys missing these other things that have happened before? And, and the answer is it's just kind of independent development. Um, later on, you know, heating methods continue to be developed. So fireplaces were there. There was the hang of tapestries. There was a hippocaust really early. And then you start getting things like uh, the Franklin stove, the radiant stove that's used for cooking and heating. You get um, natural gas and electricity coming in the 19th and 20th centuries. But you can kind of break down heating into different types, right? So you've got furnaces which use some kind of fuel to heat air, and then the air is kind of pumped through the house through ducts. Um, boilers, and boilers would take hot water, turn it into steam, and that steam rises through the pipes and heats these pipes, and those pipes radiate heat into the room directly. There are heat pumps. This is more recent, and they're getting better all the time, but heat pumps use electricity to move heat from one area to another. They can move heat from air, ground, water, and then move it into the house or out of the house. So heat pumps can work both ways. It's kind of an interesting thing. We'll talk more about them. And then fireplaces and stoves, which is just a big fire inside the house and the heat radiates out. And then finally, the last one is solar heating, which is one that um, homes can be built specifically to take in solar heat and concentrate it. The simple example of this is a greenhouse. Greenhouses are much warmer than anywhere else, in large part due to the way radiation and UV and infrared and all the different spectrums bouncing around inside of there work to increase the temperature. The solar heating that you guys are probably all familiar with on accident is when your car heats up from being parked 
outside. It's going to heat up a lot faster with the windows rolled up than with the windows down. And that's an effect of trapping radiation from the sun and not just what is being bounced off the roof to heat it up. So all of these heating methods, as they were developed, came into being to solve specific problems. Um, when you look at stuff like oil-fired heating systems, actually, let, let me back up real quick and say, if you look at London in the Industrial Revolution, that's when you really see the use of coal instead of wood. So let's talk about fuel sources. This is a better, better angle. Let's do that. So in the same way that different places would burn different kinds of things for fires, right? So if you have a lot of wood, you burn wood because it works really well. You chop it down and dry it out and you've got wood. Uh, there are places where they didn't have wood, but they have very thick layers of grass and thatch. So they chop up the grass and they dry these bricks and they'd burn that. There are places where all they have is animal droppings. And so they're using dried cow patties for fire. So you have all these different fuel sources for fires. And then you find this strange black rock that burns really, really well. It produces a ton of smoke and it's ungodly smelly and polluting, but it, it burns really, really well. And so when you're looking at how you're going to um, heat a place or run a fire or a big reason it has to do with the industrial revolution is because now you can make steam with much easier fuel sources than chopping down as much timber as you need to run a train. There's more concentrated BTUs in coal than in wood. And so around 1679, uh, French explorers discovered coal. That's the, about the time. Um, so they, find this coal and they start figuring out that they can um, use it to burn. Uh, coal mining really started going off in uh, Virginia in the 1740s. Uh, but coal was starting to be found all over the place because it's just this layer of, of compressed organic matter that's turned into almost pure carbon. And so that carbon can be used for uh, all kinds of, for fuel sources primarily, right? So it can be used in fireplaces. It can be used in stoves. If you burn it in a fireplace, you have a very, very smoky, sooty kind of output. The Industrial Revolution happening in Europe, specifically in London, really contributes to pollution. And you find that with the amount of coal being burnt, the amount of the byproduct is um, one of them is creosote, which is like the dust that comes out of coal. Um, the London fog wasn't necessarily fog always. A large portion of it was just all the smoke from all the coal being burnt all through the city. Almost all the houses were heated with coal. Parliament was heated with coal. The king and queen lived in a palace heated by coal. Just coal, coal, coal everywhere. On top of that, they're being used to drive these big industrial boilers for engines to run. So coal comes in and coal kind of changes the equation. Uh, the primary... Oil before coal is rendered tallow um, and whale oil. So those two oils kind of are used for um, candles and lubrication. There's not really enough of them to go nuts with gas or oil heaters. But when we get to the point where 
oil-fired heating becomes commonplace and becomes available, it's in large part because we do have this, this byproduct of coal. And when they're first mining coal, they're finding natural gas. The uh, Native Americans were lighting gas seeping out of the ground in, gosh, uh, around Lake Erie in 1626. In 1785, the British were using natural gas from coal to light houses and streets. In 1816, in Baltimore, in Maryland, they used manufactured natural gas, become the first city in the United States to light its streets with gas. And then in 1821, William Hart dug the first successful natural gas well in the U.S. in Fredonia, New York, uh, pointing out that <laughs> during the 19th century, it was just used for light. Um, the invention of the Bunsen burner in 1885 is what opened up the new opportunities for natural gas. Like it was able to effectively mix the gas with air to create the, the flame for a boiler. Now, again, calling out that at the time that this was happening, we're way behind because in 500 BC, the Chinese were using crude bamboo pipelines to move gas that was seeping to the surface. And they were using it to boil seawater to get drinkable water. Say so that they were desalinating seawater at 500 BC, which is just good on them. But still, not heating, right? So natural gas doesn't have this switch into heating until like the, the late 1880s, right? And so the natural gas that's super popular wasn't around for a lot of the stuff uh, back east. Um, the stuff that was available and kind of worked on this was oil as they were building out and kind of putting these places in, they were having furnaces or boilers that were running off of oil. Um, it's strange because a lot of homes still in the Northeast take oil deliveries. They take oil deliveries and have a big oil tank in the basement that runs a boiler or a furnace and heats the house. That's pretty common. As you get into the Southwest, you don't have that. Uh, the temperate weather meant that the need was lower. And at the time, you could kind of, they were building out natural gas. And so there's a huge switch between what's happening back east, what's happening in middle America, than what's happening on the West Coast. And that's in large part when different fuel sources were discovered. It'd be very difficult to go out to Long Island and plumb the whole thing for natural gas. The other one that is around is propane. Propane similar to natural gas. It tends to be more expensive and less efficient. Where you see propane is in houses that are far enough off the grid that they can have a big old tank. And that big old tank is going to get filled once in a while. It's much less messy than having oil. It's more affordable than oil. It doesn't have as many fluctuations in price as crude oil. Um, it's also very commonly used in RVs, portable heaters, and those kind of spots in large part because propane is higher in energy per unit than natural gas is. So you can have a smaller tank of propane provide the same amount of heat as a larger tank of natural gas. But natural gas is, is easier to produce and easier to get through pipes and into homes. And so whichever system you decide on, you kind of end up in that space. So in thinking about the different fuel sources and how they affect the heating of the area, I was staying in New York for a minute. One of the things New York noticed was that they had a lot of excess heat 
from their engineering plants. They started building these big engines in the 1880s to kind of run all the machines that were being there for the factories and manufacturing that was taking place at the time. A big piece that came out of that was waste heat. So they have these rooms that are just hot as all get out and they're kind of trying to figure out what to do with that. Um, The city figures out that they can have district heating. And so they capitalize on the waste heat of these machines and they dive in and put together pipes that carry steam and hot water to nearby buildings. And so in New York, you have this really interesting fusion of civil society and manufacturing and homes where a lot of the radiators in the old buildings in New York are still connected to these district heating systems. So when you turn the little knob on your radiator to make it go on, you're getting heat from a block away that's pumped down through pipe or pumped through pipes and the pressure comes through into your room and that's where your heat's coming from. It's not in the building. It's also really interesting to watch when something happens with the pipes and they need to repair them. They bring in these big trucks and park them on the street in front of the building and tap in to the heating line, the water line, and they they have a boiler in the street that's sending this heat into those buildings. And so there's no heat to that building except from the district boiler. So that's really gonna affect how you build buildings, how many buildings you can have in an area, if you're relying on that to supply the heat, which is freaking great. Uh, There are a ton of buildings there that have their own boilers, but there's a lot that are connected to the district heating. So boilers have a huge effect in how heat works in New York. Um, The oil is a big thing in the Northeast. In the Southwest, you have more natural gas. And then you have propane for kind of buildings that are disconnected. Um, Boilers are interesting because they have... Some of them are easy to regulate and some of them are difficult. And that comes down to how controlled the source of heat is. But however controlled it is, the end result is boiling water coming through. And you set a little valve and you can open or close it and that controls how much steam is getting into the radiator itself. Some more complicated boilers have thermostats that properly measure the air in the room and go, Okay, keep it at this temperature, and it'll close and open that valve to maintain the temperature. It can be relatively easy to regulate the temperature. Oh, you set it and forget it. When I was living in New York in a building that was built in the 1800s and had been modified over the years, they still had two kinds of radiators. One is a pipe radiator, and the pipe radiator went straight through the room. It had no regulation, so if the heat was on, the heat was coming off of it. Uh, I would open my window in the middle of winter while it was snowing because it was getting so hot in the bedroom with the pipe. The other one is the classic radiator with the little knob on top. And those are fiddly as all get out because as soon as you think you've got it at the right temperature, it's going to keep producing heat. And so eventually you're going to have to close it back down and try again. And it's this and it's this back and forth to try and regulate your heat. You're You're fiddling with it almost constantly and it's not my favorite thing in the world. Um, The other way that you can kind of go through and heat places that I mentioned was a heat pump. And a heat pump is interesting because it doesn't really care how the power is developed or where the power comes from. It's using electricity that can be generated from solar, that can be generated from oil, it can be hydro, it can be wind, whatever it is. 
But the cool thing about heat pumps is all they do is move heat around. So if it's warm outside and cold inside and you want it to be warmer inside, you can do that. If it's warm outside and cold inside and you want it to be colder inside, you can do that. Because remember, heat is just an amount of motion of molecules, right? So if you can take that excitement of molecules and move it somewhere else, that area cools off and the other area heats up. So a heat pump is a deceptive name because an air conditioner is a kind of heat pump. The air conditioner you have in your car is using a compressor coil to move heat around. It's moving heat from the cabin to the engine block, right? And the one in your house is moving heat from inside the house to outside the house. But if you have one that is reversible and can change the compression direction, all of a sudden you can move the heat either way. You can move it in, you can move it out, you can put it here, you can put it there. Now, because it's a heat pump, there has to be heat to pump. And what I mean by that is that there are certain temperatures where it starts not working very well. So when you get down, if it's a place that gets below um, 50, below 40 degrees, you're gonna have a really hard time using a heat pump because there's not a lot of heat outside to move inside. Uh, it is extremely efficient at temperatures like down to 50 it works really well it gets below that and it's a little bit more complicated there are different kinds and some of them work work quite well um, they tend to be more efficient than other types of heating they use electricity to move heat rather than generate it so generating heat is usually a watt to a watt like it takes a watt of some kind of energy whether it's coal or oil or propane to create a watt of heat because you're just moving heat with a heat pump it's somewhere in the order of one to three when it's really working efficiently, meaning you use one watt of electricity to move three watts of heat. That's crazy. So these are super efficient, and that's something we're going to talk about next week when we get into the future of all this stuff, because it is fascinating. The last thing to talk about now that we've covered kind of most of the basic ways that you can heat and uh, space, like bring heat into a property, is how well it stays there. And how well it stays there is really a factor of what the building is made of. If you've ever been in a tent when it's cold, you know that that is not as effective as being in a house when it's cold. Uh, easy example of this is igloos. Igloos are actually pretty good at keeping the heat inside because they're, they're thick and they're keeping a lot of the elements that cool off outside, which is great. The way that you measure how effective different materials are at keeping the heat in is done with a thing called an R value. So R values are applied to both insulation and building materials. So wood has R values, uh, aluminum has R values, different things uh, are more or less effective at heat. But the way they work is that R values have a range from like really low R's in the single digits to materials that are like R60 for really dense attic insulation. And the way those numbers work is that the R value represents how much heat resistance the material has per inch of depth. So two inches of an R value R30 is equivalent to one inch of an R value of 60. So you can mix and match these things depending on how much space you're gonna have. And that's gonna really determine what your R value ends up being. This is further complicated by what they call the, the your home's envelope, the entire space that's holding all that temperature inside and protecting it from the temperature outside. That can be interrupted by flows under the door, drafty windows, uh, really old windows that are single pane 
and have metal frames. Metal doesn't resist heat, it conducts it, so it'll just bring air or bring coldness into the house. And the way that the houses are built can change all this, all kinds of things. So air is actually not a bad insulation space. Like air has an R value of 3.6. So it, it's super low, but that in conjunction with other things means that if you can stop the heat from getting to the air, the air will kind of act as a second barrier. So just having the air inside of the walls does act as a barrier because you usually have two by fours. And so you have about three and a half inches of air in your wall. And so if you just put drywall on the outside, drywall on the inside, you've got drywall on either side plus an R of about, let's call it about 10 for that air gap, which that's, that's not awful. It's not great. It's going to slow down the cooling and kind of pack it up. But you have different kinds of insulation that are better than air. You have different kinds that have kind of been either manufactured or discovered, right? So you've got fiberglass pops up in the 1930s, and it's a, made from fine glass fibers. It's, it's used walls, ceilings, and attics. It's both durable and affordable, okay? So it's pretty good. Fiberglass can have a huge range of R values depending on how it's made. Uh, you have cellulose, which is um, it's made from recycled paper. So it's treated with chemicals to make it fire and insect resistance, and it can be used in walls, attics, and floors. It can be blown. Um, it can be, it, it looks, sometimes it looks like chunky gray matter. Uh, you can use mineral wool, which is made from rocks. <laughs> it's really just made from rocks, so they just spin it into um, mineral. It has high heat resistance, so that makes it useful for being a fire barrier as well as a heat barrier because it's not going to burn and it's going to give a good degree of insulation. And then the other one that you'll see more and more of is foam. And it's it's made from plastic or synthetic materials, but they'll spray it or inject it into walls and it has high insulation and it seals air out of the property. So it'll eliminate any draft that might be coming through the wall by being an ex a foam that kind of seals. So when you're looking at properties, there are some materials that are good at insulating. Wood and stone can kind of help maintain a consistent temperature inside the home. There's some that are poor at insulation, metal and glass. And so that's why they try to make double pane glass and have that air gap in there. Because even though air has a low R rating, when you have glass on the outside, glass on the inside, and even a half inch, that's gonna be so much better than glass, which is just gonna conduct that stuff straight in. The one to talk about that's kind of not around anymore is asbestos. Asbestos is naturally occurring and it's a common material for fire resistant and insulating properties in the early years. It was used for tons of stuff, including roofing, flooring, siding. It was popular in the middle of the 20th century, so 1950s. It was used a lot and then they realized that it was not safe. It, it causes lung cancer and mesothelioma. So this isn't a situation where they knew that and were just throwing it in there. It was like a miracle. They're like, look at this. This is amazing. When they first discovered it, people would get blankets of asbestos and throw them into the fire and be like, oh, it's fine. Look, it didn't burn. And it was a party trick. Um, but now it's banned or heavily restricted. Uh, there's asbestos removal. There's the class action mesothelioma ads, late night TV. But that's, that's one of the ones that's there. So all these things kind of add to show how effective your heating is. Because if your home envelope is really good and you're using a very efficient heater, 
then you're going to have a pretty stable internal climate, which is what modern heating vents and air conditioning is really about. It's about regulating that home environment so it's comfortable and livable and reduces the amount of stress on your body and increases the amount of comfort. As we get into more and more record hot days and we start to see people that don't have access to adequate heating or cooling dying from lack of access, it starts to become a much more important proposition. Uh, the future of this is very compelling, but there's also a spot where we have to try and figure out how to make sure that it's accessible to all and we get more people into appropriately climate controlled areas as the general climate becomes more hostile in some of the places we're living in. Some places are still fine for just living there and needing minimal um, heating, needing minimal air conditioning, but there's a lot of places that are getting a little sideways. So this is all to say that with all these different heating things, you're gonna have totally different places that do it totally different ways. You're gonna have old brick buildings in the Northeast that have been modified with new, more efficient internal heat exchanges, heat pumps. And then you're gonna have places in hot areas like Arizona and Las Vegas where the building is, before it's stucco, the building is sometimes wrapped in one inch of styrofoam uh, as an additional barrier to the heat during the summer. Uh, there, there's all these different ways to solve these problems. And what's fascinating is that as we continue to find new and better ways to solve these problems, they become more affordable they become more environmentally friendly and they become more sustainable and it becomes more accessible to kind of everybody. So that's going to end us for part two. If you do need property management services, you can reach us at poplar.home slash POD. That's poplar.home slash pod. Next week, we're going to talk about the future of heating, venting, and air conditioning and talk about the amazing stuff that's happening, how we're gonna use it to go to space, what it's gonna be like on Mars, and how that's gonna affect the way we live here at home on our own planet Earth. So thank you, whoever, wherever you are for listening. We look forward to talking to you next week. Until then, from all of us at Poplar Homes, have a great day. Bye-bye.